I want to pray for all of our fathers and father figures. And so I'm going to ask all the men to stand, if you would. And let's celebrate these men as they stand. And look at how many men we have in this worship gathering. It's pretty amazing. Hallelujah. Fantastic. Remain standing, guys. Praise God. And if you're sitting next to you, if you're close to a guy, just uh, put your hands on their shoulders or point towards them as we pray for these men here and those who are represented as we, who are listening by video. God, we give you thanks and praise for the fathers in this room and those that are listening by video. We pray that you will continue to guide and bless and strengthen. Thank you for all the different ways that these fathers have attempted to be faithful in blessing the next generation. We ask that you teach us and guide us as we seek to take the next step in loving, in mentoring, in connecting, and being transformative presence in the lives of our kids and others that we're providing a father figure for. And then, Lord, we pause a moment and end the silence. I want to ask that you would hear us as we remember those fathers who've slipped from time to eternity, as we simply whisper their names, and as we remember those fathers who are yet alive but displaced from our lives. Hear us as we whisper their names. For those fathers who are in eternity, we give you thanks for their lives. For those who have been displaced from us, we pray for your grace and mercy to work in the details of their living. And we give you thanks for all the coaches and teachers and older brothers and grandfathers and uncles and mentors, all who play the role of fathers to so many children beyond their own. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. And everybody shout amen. amen and amen. Celebrate again. Come on, put your hands together. All right, as we get started, uh, one quick announcement uh, as they get ready to throw the scripture up on the board in just a minute. Uh, some of you have been trying to figure out what's the distance, what's the extra distance is going to be in terms of in comparison to how long it takes you to get here to come to worship as opposed when compared to how long it will take you to get uh, to our new location in Ridwood City. So our team has helped you uh, to process that through. If you go to our website uh, on our move page, uh, and you can get there from the beginning of our website, uh, you'll find that we've listed all of the cities from which uh, NBC uh, NBC Sears come from, if that's a word, uh, and so you can find your city, your community, and it has the exact amount of miles or in terms of extra time it will take, and there's a link to a Google Maps, and you can kind of check it for yourself, but here's the good news. For the average person who attends NBCC, it will only be an extra five to eight minutes uh, out on the highway. Can we just give God a hand praise for that? All right, so go to the website and check that out. Uh, we know that if you're interested in that, it's not just about your convenience. It's also about your ability to invite and bring others with you. So having said that, uh, we're going to open your Bibles and also check the passage out on the screen and let us stand to Philippians chapter 4.
And I'm going to read starting at verse 4. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God, shout tell God, what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds everything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you've learned and received from me, everything you've heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Shout amen. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, do something special in all of us uh, as we engage your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, we're in the fourth week of a series that we have entitled, Don't Panic. Uh, The big idea of this series is uh, that a growing relationship with Jesus uh, has some very practical implications for our lives. And one of those practical implications is that it enables us to deal with and overcome daily our various bouts with anxiety. This uh, passage is being written by the Apostle Paul. Most of you know he's in prison while he's writing it. But what's interesting about chapter 4 is that he takes on the subject of anxiety uh, head on. And what I want to show you is that one of the things that he does, the first nine verses is really about anxiety. So in uh, verse 6, you'll see that he will actually name this notion of anxiety if you're reading it in the NIV uh, or the King James Version. Everybody shout anxiety. And by that I mean, I don't just mean normal nervousness, I mean uh, what I call dominating worries and fears. Fears and worries that dominate your life and forces uh, you to do and act a certain way. Notice what Paul does in these first nine verses. He starts with verse 6, calling out anxiety. But there is a direct line that he draws to verse 2. And verse 2 is about conflict. And so in verse 2, you will see that Paul begins by addressing two women who are in conflict with each other in the church in Philippi. These are two Christian leaders, senior leaders, he will indicate in verse 3, leaders who once worked with him, who he has a great deal of respect for, and they are in conflict. Now what's very interesting then about verse 6 and following that deals specifically with anxiety is that what Paul is doing is he is still addressing the conflict that he started talking about in verse 2 and 3. Ah, one of the first insights then, big insight, everybody shout big insight, that jumps off the page when we think about it in this sense, that he's talking about anxiety in relationship to the conflict that he's trying to get resolved in verse 2 and 3, is that hidden beneath most or many of our 
conflictual relationships is this notion of anxiety, dominating worry or fear. There's something you're worried about. There's something you're afraid about. These two leaders obviously were once friends. They served in the same church. It reminds us about conflict in our personal relationships. They are leaders in the church. It reminds us about conflict that happens at work among our leadership teams uh, and how it has a ripple effect across our organizations. And what Paul is saying is that while anxiety may present itself as somebody lying, and so you're arguing about their honesty or dishonesty, what really might be going on beneath that is that they're afraid that if you really knew the truth about them, you wouldn't love them. Um, while conflict may present as somebody trying to get the upper hand, this person is always uh, is, is destructive in their competition. They always have to win. What may be beneath that is the anxiety, the worry. If I don't win, I'm going to lose out on everything. Or the person who has to be in control. And so you've been arguing about the need to be in control with your spouse or your significant other or your children. But what may be beneath that conflict is the worry, the anxiety that if I'm not in control, I'm going to be dominated. So in most counseling sessions that I've had over the years, especially with couples, I have found that beneath the conflict, there's always a dominant worry or fear. And if you can figure out this dominant worry or fear and put it on top of the table and deal with that, it gives you a way to work through conflict. This is what Paul is talking about. This is why he deals with anxiety in relationship to conflict. Now, let me just say a word with, for fathers. This is Father's Day. One of the things that fathers are we fathers are challenged with is that sometimes we make unhealthy comparison among our kids. Sometimes it comes out like this. How come you don't do as well as your brother did? Your sister does so well. How come you can't do so well? Unhealthy comparison. But oftentimes beneath those kind of comparisons which gets us into a lot of trouble, a lot of lock-on arguments with, with folks that we love and our kids. The conflict is the unhealthy comparison. What's beneath it is the anxiety, the fear that says, I'm afraid that your future is going to be forfeited. I'm afraid that you're not exhibiting the talent or the gifts or the skills that you're going to need to succeed. How much more amazing would it be if we could talk about this? The anxiety. Shout anxiety. anxiety. All right, here's a passage from Ephesians 6, 4. Here's what the writer says. Paul is the same writer. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In other words, push them over the edge. That's what it really means. Another translation is exasperate them by how you treat them. But raise them up, the text says, with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So what he's saying is that when you discipline your kids, let that discipline be informed by godly insight. All right, here's a question. If I need to talk to my child about my fear that she or he is on the wrong road and headed towards success, how do I do that? Shout how. We do it the same way that God does it with us. God always begins, come on now, focused on 
affirming for us unconditional love and grace. That's what we just experienced in communion, did we not? Unconditional love. So when God deals with us, and he does deal with us, he always does it from a perspective. I want you to know first and foremost, I love you. And there's nothing you can do to mess that up. Try that when you start engaging with your kids, whether they be adult or children. So the insight here is beneath most conflicts is anxiety. All right. Second insight that comes out of this text uh, is, I think it's interesting, is around this word joy. Everybody shout joy. joy. All right. Here's what the text says. It says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. That's what Paul writes. All right. New Living Translation. Now, I'm going to define this. I'm going to modify this word joy by adding the word spiritual joy because that's actually what he means when he talks about this. Always be full of joy. What? In the Lord. Meaning the joy that he's talking about should flow from the relationship that we have with Jesus. Now, I hope you come back and finish this series because I'm going to really dive into this uh, in a couple of weeks when I, when I end this, this series. But I'm going to say two things of insight about this joy today. All right, make sure you're writing. These are two significant things that we're going to say. All right, the first thing is, and I'll unpack them quickly. The first thing is that uh, the absence of joy, this is the Paul, point Paul is making, is often what leads to anxiety. Anxiety usually reflects the absence of joy. And absent joy often reveals what I call displaced affections or misplaced affections. All right, so let's, let me describe it this way. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. And I'm paraphrasing. He says, a faithful follower of Jesus, I'm going to tell you this quote, then I'm going to draw. Now, I'm telling you that I'm going to draw because I already feel the excitement in the room <laughs> as the Picasso gets ready to come out. So I just want you to marinate on that. As we... Here's what C.S. Lewis says. A faithful follower of Jesus should not rest in the sunbeam, but allow his or her mind to scale the beam to rest in the sun. All right, so you can get it. Get ready. I'm about to draw. Here it goes. What's that? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, watch this. I bet you don't know what those are. Wait a minute. Wait, what is it? All right, hold on. You got it. You got it. I'm going to give you a clue. What are these? All right, very good. Very good. Very good. Here's what C.S. Lewis' point is. That we should never simply focus on the beams, but we should allow our minds to scale up and find our rest, our identity, our certainty of love in the sun. 
the sun is always more powerful than the beam. All right, let me break it down a little bit more. Think about these beams as pleasures. Everybody shout pleasures. All right, let's name some pleasures. There's sex. There's money. What else? Help me. There's a house. What else, guys? Come on. Food. Yes, yes. Really good food. What else? Clothes. Yes, yes. yes. I heard car. Yes. What? What? Well, I didn't hear that. Job. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Very good. Hobbies. Yeah, yeah. Hobbies. You got that. All right. Here's says this point. These are all pleasures and they meant to be enjoyed in appropriate ways. But never, but these pleasures are but a sampling. Shout sampling. Are but a sampling of something far greater. Now let me, let me, let me explain it this way. When I was a kid, some of you have heard this story before, my grandmother baked uh, for Thanksgiving these various cakes. My favorite was coconut cake. I love the coconut cake, and if you had uh, uh, coconut cake the way you used to do it in the country, the, the frosting would overflow, be like layered. So much so that when you put the cake top down, there would be an overflow outside Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. So my grandmother typically would say on Thanksgiving Day to the kids, stay out of where those cakes are. First dinner, then cakes. We say, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. But inevitably, every now and then, before I met Jesus, <laughs> I would sneak where the cakes were. And I was smart enough not to take the top off and cut. That would get me killed. But I would take my finger and I'd go around the side of the cake and I would just enjoy. Now, two things about that. Number one, that frosting was a sampling of what was to come. You see what I'm saying? It was not the cake, y'all, but it was a sampling and it held me until I could get to the cake. All right, here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11. Here's, I like the King James Version. Oh, Lord, you've showed me the path that I should take. Meaning, this is the path. I'm on pleasures of pointing me towards you. You showed me the path that I should take. Come on. And then he says, and in your presence, right here, come on, y'all, is the fullness of what? Joy. And at your right hand, what? pleasures forevermore. So what, what, what C.S. Lewis is saying, what Paul is saying, is never confuse the samplings of pleasure with the ultimate source of joy, which is God himself. All right, now let me give you another way. Now what Paul is saying, when we make the confusion, it leads to anxiety, and anxiety leads to conflict. Let me talk about joy one more way. This is the second way. You can have spiritual joy in the midst of sadness. Because joy is really about an awareness, a certainty of knowing that God loves you and that he's for you no matter what. 
And there's a buoyancy about joy. Listen, this is, this is the point. This is the point. There's a, there's a buoyancy about joy. Listen, listen. Did I say warriors? We are the champions. I'm sorry. We'll get back on the message. Got distracted. Sorry. <laughs> but one of the things that's special about the basketball <laughs> is that there's a buoyancy that when you knock it down, it bounces back up. As a matter of fact, it's so dependable that you can dribble by knocking it down and expect it to drop back up. Everybody say buoyancy. Hey, it's like taking a beach ball in a swimming pool, trying to push the beach ball down. It always pops back up. And what, what Paul teaches us about this spiritual joy is that if I know who I am in God, life is going to go crazy, Right? Sometimes my kids are going to act right and I'm going to enjoy that pleasure, right? But there are other times they're going to lose their mind. And what Paul is saying, while it may break my heart, it shouldn't make me lose my mind, right? Because ultimately, I'm only getting a little bit from them. I'm putting my, the, my weight on God. And if I'm certain about it, come on now, life knocks me down, but that joy gives me a buoyancy. Come on, sickness knocks me down, but there's a buoyancy. Come on, divorce knocks me down, but there's a buoyancy. Because I know that God loves me and that God is for me. If that makes sense, give God a hand praise. So let your joy be full in the Lord. Stay conscious of, of who God is. In other words, do not rest in the blessings, rest in the blessed soul. That's where your the weight of your confidence has to be. Okay, now, all right. So he's saying, your your joy, high anxiety, reveals something about missing joy or displaced pleasures. Gets you in trouble. Secondly, so now he gets to a solution. Shout solution. I really love this. This is exciting. I said, so okay, what do you do? I'm anxious. Verse 6, he he takes it right on. He says, in the King James Version, be anxious for nothing. See anxiety? But in all things. In the New International Version, it says, don't be anxious about anything. You see the anxiety? The new translation, the new living translation, which is what we use, uh, this is what it says. You know, you remember I'm talking about dominating worries. Don't worry about anything. Instead, everybody shout instead. That modifies this phrase, don't worry about anything, right? I'll come back to it in a minute. Instead, pray about what? everything all right here, here what, what Paul is saying is is choose a different approach to how you've been dealing with your anxieties right. and then he tells you how to pray here's what he says in terms of how to pray he says tell God about what you need tell God about your needs shout needs and then he says it's not finished you're not finished until you thank God for all you've done. All right, now there's two, two quick points I want to say here. He's talking about prayer. And he's saying, share with God your feelings. 
while identifying your needs. And he's saying, expand your focus. All right. Everybody shout prayer. This is about talking to God. Here's what I learned. You can do this too. Go home, put in Google a question. What happens to my brain when I pray? And you're going to get some incredible insight about what happens to your brain when you pray. Now, here's what we learned. Here's what we've learned. Scientists have learned that when you pray, that there is a physiological response. The frontal lobes, which, which is the part of your brain that focuses and concentrates, lights up. But what's more interesting is that the part of your brain that allows you a consciousness of self and to perceive the world around you shuts down. Watch this. And what's even more interesting is that neurotransmitters, which is chemicals, are released into the body during that period of time. And it has an effect on calming your blood pressure and slowing the beat of your heart. Y'all listening to me? Y'all ain't listening. All right. All right. Here's what happened. So my question is, why is the brain structured that way? Well, now, if you are an evolutionist, here's what you will say. You'll say it is an evolutionary byproduct of the development of humankind. And then my question to you is, why? Where did that come from? Here's my answer. I don't like giving kids mobile phones. They get a certain age. But my daughter's 12, and I gave her a mobile phone. The reason why I gave her a mobile phone is because how she gets from my house to school means that she takes the train and this and that. And so I never want her to be in a place where if she gets in trouble, she can't reach me. Uh, in other words, if she needs daddy, I want her to be able to reach me. One day, I was on my way to work, big meeting, waiting. My phone rang. It's my daughter. She's missed her train, her second train. So she's swinging it. Daddy, can you come pick me up? Really? That <laughs> was my first answer. <laughs> second thing is, yes. I call the office, watch this. And I say, y'all just go on with the meeting. I'll get there when I get there. Turn around, 30 minutes out of my way, picked her up, took her to school. All right. I am an imperfect daddy. I've got an imperfect love. But if in my imperfection as a father, I got sense enough to know that I want my daughter to be able to get in touch with me whenever she needs me, and I give her a mobile phone, that's the same thing the perfect father, God the creator, has already figured out. Come on now. So he has built a mobile phone into our physiology. Y'all ain't listening. He's built a GPS into our physiology. And whether, whatever your religious background, whatever your language, whatever your culture, all over the world, people know, come on now, that there is something more to life than myself. And when I'm in trouble and whatever, I might not even know who God is. I don't even know his name. I call him tree, universe. Come on now. But I'm going to call on somebody. Y'all ain't listening. It's built into my physiology. 
So Paul is dealing with the scientific realities. Come on now. He said, here's what he said. Here's what Paul said. Paul said, talk with God. Tell him your needs and your thanks. And then he says this. And you will experience. Everybody say experience. experience. You will experience God's peace. Which exceeds anything we can understand. This is exactly what the neurologists say. They say that when you tap into prayer, come on now, whatever the context of the prayer, and you get to a certain point in the prayer, and the, and, 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 and the front of the load lights up, and the other loads begin to shut down, after a period of time, there is a peace that begins to fill the body. Y'all ain't listening to me. The scientists are trying to figure out, y'all, they're trying to, they're trying to examine how God has structured us, y'all, so that when we pray, there's a practical implication. It is a physiological reality, but it is also, I believe, a spiritual reality that God uses how we're designed to deal with us in our anxiety. So even if you don't believe in God, Paul said you ought to pray anyway. No, excuse me, Paul didn't say that. The scientist says you ought to pray anyway. <laughs> That's a physiological. All right, so here's the insight. So take 15 minutes. If you're really stressed, divide your life 15 minutes at some point in the day. And another 15 minutes, another point, maybe 15 in the morning, 15 at lunch. Find a quiet place, 30 minutes a day, and share your feelings. Tell God, here's what's going on in my life. Tell God, here's, here's how I feel. You know, I think I'm going to run out of money. I'm so stressed. Every time we get to the end of the month, we have more month than money. Oh, Lord. Tell him, I, I'm afraid when I go to the doctor, it's going to be a bad deal. And, and my grandmother and my aunt, they all had it. Just talk to him. Come on. Tell him, that husband that I got, that boyfriend, that girlfriend that I got, is just driving me crazy. I think I'm going to kill him, but I need you to help me. Help me not to kill. Help me, help me, help me. Just tell God. These children, oh Lord, I've done everything that I know, and they're going downward rather than up, and I just don't know what I need to do. You just, just share your feelings with God. That's, that's, that's Paul said. That's prayer. That's all it is. Talk to God. Just, just talk to him like we're talking for 15 minutes come on and when you say you figure out 15 minutes is too short but just focus on 15 minutes and then inside of that identify your needs because he says share your needs now I think there's two levels of needs one is the physical level if I'm sick I need healing if I run out of money I need money if my if my marriage is falling apart I need reconciliation that's a physical kind of emotional reality right but then I think there's a spiritual reality because behind every emotional, physical reality, there's a spiritual reality. So you need to ask God, okay, God, I see the physical need. Show me what the spiritual need. Maybe the spiritual need is that you need to grow in your ability to trust God. That way you take the handcuffs off and basically you say, God, if I get money at the end of the month, great. If I don't get money at the end of the month, I'm going to still trust you because I know you're going to make a way out of nowhere. Come on. Uh, if you heal me, awesome. I want to be healed. But if, I, if, if you don't heal me, I know that I, my soul belongs to you. I'm going to trust you. If you save this marriage, awesome. But if you don't save the marriage, I'm going to take advantage of a fresh opportunity to get a new start because I know you're for me and not against me. And that's the main thing that matters. You see what I'm saying? What's the spiritual need? Maybe it's obedience. Maybe you know that God is saying, do this, 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 and you, you stop. Maybe you need to come to worship more than once, a couple, once every couple of months. Maybe you need to say, you know what, for the next seven weeks, I'm going to come to worship. 
And not just to check it off. But I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to listen to the songs. I'm going to listen to the message. And I'm going to take one thing out of the message. And I'm going to practice it during the week. And I'm going to do this for six weeks in a row. Because what I sense God is saying, you need to get closer to me. What's your spiritual need? That's the question you should ask. All right. Shout narrow view. You start with your needs. That keeps you anchored in reality. But Paul says, don't stop until you go to the thank you list. That expands your view. Now, here's an insight. Most of us know that anybody who always talks about things are great and never acknowledges when things are bad, there's a river called the Nile. And you're living in it. Come on. (laughs) We call you in denial. Right? You're too narrow. You're not realistic. Come on, y'all said that. You know that's true. Most of us don't acknowledge the opposite. That if all I see is bad, if all I see is negative, if all I see is what's wrong, and I miss all of the blessings in the middle of it, y'all ain't listening, that's Denial. That too is a narrow view. So what Paul says, prayer helps you to reshape your focus. So when you finish talking about your needs, he then says, thank him for all the things. Shout all the things. He has done. It's like making a list. And when you start making a list of all the things that he has done, come on now, suddenly your view emerges. I mean, maybe your money's been funny for the last six months, but you've never missed a meal. That's a blessing. Do you know that only in America do we have, uh, in the Western world, do we have an obesity crisis? That if you're in some of these other parts of the world, there's no obesity crisis. So if you're, if you're struggling with your weight, there's a blessing in there. That means I've got a lot to eat. <laughs> Come on. I tell my staff from time to time, no matter how many challenges we have with the church, never miss the big blessing. That every weekend, more than a thousand people from every walk of life, this is a miracle, shows up here week after week after week after week. Come on. That is the evidence that God is involved in what we're doing. Paul says, see the trouble, but see the blessings. Come on now. And that gives you a broader view. And it helps to calm your anxiety. Because you don't have to ask God to help. When you name the blessing, you'll figure out he's already helping. Good God Almighty. Here's the third piece, and we'll finish this. All right, share your feelings, identify needs. Expand your focus, talk about needs and blessings. Go from problems to the praises. And thirdly, reshape your perspective. Now, here's here's what Paul says. I told y'all last week, there are two ways of looking at life. One is through perception. That's what I can sense through my senses, the facts. The other is perspective. And while you can't change the facts, you have control of the perspective. How do you interpret the facts? Will it make you lay down or will it inspire you to get up? You have control. Paul says that human beings naturally, 
gravitate towards the negative. So you have to discipline yourself, to cultivate yourself, to opening yourself so that you can see the positive. That's why he says, here's the final thing I want to say to you. Fix your thoughts. In other words, look for it, meditate, reflect on these things. Number three, first three. Whatsoever, uh, whatsoever thing is true, right? Whatsoever thing is what? Put it up there. Did you see that? Put it, put it, put it, scripture up there. Whatsoever thing is, verse 8, put verse 8 up there. Whatsoever thing is true. Where is it at? Honorable and right. Stop right there. Here's what Paul says. No matter how many things are going wrong, this is what I think these three things mean. There are some things going right. If you woke up this morning, something's going right. Come on. Even if you're sleeping in a bed that has a shelter in it, in it something is going right. If you're sitting under here and, and you're able to walk in and walk out by yourself, something is going right. And so what he's saying is it's okay to acknowledge what's going wrong, but you've got to learn how to practice looking for what's going right. All right, watch the next group. Watch the next group. He says, what's everything is pure, lovely, and admirable. Here's his point of that, of, those, of that grouping. He's saying no matter how ugly life is, there's some beauty somewhere. There's some beauty somewhere because God is in it with you. So there's some beauty. And we learn this. On your, when you look at the darkest night, come on, the beauty of the stars sparkles it. So what Paul is saying, you have to practice looking for what goes right. You have to practice looking for the beauty amidst the ugliness, right? And he says that you got to, you got to practice out. You got to, that otherwise you'll do it for a day and then your mind will jump back. Jump back. So you got to practice it. And then lastly, watch this. He says, he says, and whatever things are excellent, shout excellent, and worthy of praise. Say worthy of praise. Focus on these. Here's his point. No matter how many things are going wrong, learn to also look for what's going right in your marriage. Right at your job. Right in your private relationships. No matter how ugly life is, maybe you just came through a trauma, but see where the beauty is. Maybe somebody died you love, but look at the love that's flowing to you by people who are coming to feed you and care for you. Look for the beauty. And here's the third piece. Last night, I was eavesdropping on my wife, talking to my daughter. <laughs> it's really their fault because they were in the room where I was working on the message. And, and, and Rhonda said to Lauren, I don't think that I did, this is where I came in. Rhonda said, what have you accomplished? They were going back and forth. And Lauren said, well, I got A's on my finals. And Rhonda said, well, Nikki, that is a great accomplishment. And then Rhonda said, but you know what? At the end of the day, I'm not really super concerned about the A's on the final. She says, what I'm really concerned about is that you find your passion and that you give yourself to your passion. And since I was eavesdropping, I added, <laughs> I spoke up and I said, and also that you always do your best. This is what Paul says, you find anything else. This is his point. The child fathers, listen, may not Get the A. But this year he put forth an A effort. 
So rather than beating her or him up about the missed eight, yes, encourage them to keep working, but, 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 but make sure you celebrate the eight effort. Come on, wives. The husband only took out the trash three times this week. Come on now. But rather than beating him up about the, about the other, what was it, what, seven days? What, what, how many days are left? Eight? Is that, what is it? I can't count. What is it? <laughs> four. All right. About the other four. Remember that six months ago, he didn't take it out at all. So give God praise and give him praise for the A effort. Come on now. <sighs> Whatsoever thing is of excellence, of praise report, pull that out and celebrate it. And it begins to change how you see the world and how you handle anxiety. Amen. And so that's where we end. So Paul says, deal with God like this. Point number two. Deal with people like this. Share with them what you're feeling. Also share with them what's going well. See what I'm saying? And focus more on what's working as opposed to focusing everything on what's broke. And then the third thing, be a model. Everybody shout, be a model. Be a model. He says, look, what you see me say and do that's what I want you to do. Fathers, you don't have to be a perfect model. You know, that insight I gave about an A for the effort, that's, that's how God treats us. By the way, I think somebody needs to hear me tell you that here's what God is saying to you. Yes, you've messed up. Yes, you've got some things wrong. But God says, I see the effort. And I'm giving you an A for effort. I'm blessing you for the effort. Keep working at it. So dads, let's keep working on being what we hope our children might become. Give God a hand, praise.